0: Welcome to Conflicts of Interests, SwissPeace's new academic podcast dedicated to research in peace and conflict. The idea is simple, you either work in or study these fields and have a long list of books you've been wanting to read, but never really time to actually do that. So we fill this void. We carefully select one of the most original books related to peace building that's been published in the past two years and meet with the author in this podcast so that you grasp its core argument and relevance for your work, and, well, ideally, perhaps also go on and read it. I am Dr. Leandra Bias, Swiss Peace Gender and Peacebuilding Advisor, and for this first episode, I have the honour to welcome Dr. Mary Martin as our guest. Mary Martin is Director on the UN Business and Human Security Initiative at LSE Ideas. And previously, she was European business editor of The Guardian and later The Daily Telegraph. But more importantly for today, she's the author of the book Corporate Peace How Global Business Shapes a Hostile World. It came out last year with Hearst Publishers and outlines the experiences of large corporations such as Fiat, Arcel, Metall, or BP. And she shows how big business is increasingly critical in building a safer world in a world that is characterized by health pandemics, insurgencies and organized crime. So we'll have the pleasure to delve into that. Mary, welcome. Thank you, Leandra, great to be here talking to you. So to start us off, I would like to start with our future of the news anchor. And all I'd like you to do in this part is just to answer one question. When did current events last make you think about your book and why so?
1: Well, it's got to be the COVID pandemic. I'm afraid everything is about the pandemic, isn't it? But I think it's highlighted many things. It's a crisis that affects us as a species. It's about our humanity and that's why we're vulnerable. Um, So it's a crisis that's existential, but it's not about classic state security, so involving military force or defending territory or even ethnic violence. It's about our everyday existence. And what I wanted to show in the book is how business is a part of that kind of security. It's at the center of our struggle to be safe in a world of multiple threats, threats to health, to jobs, to the environment that are happening in the everyday and all at the same time. And I think secondly, the crisis for me has shown the need for collective solutions we need collaborations, collaborations between governments, between government and business, and business and communities and civil society, of course. And I think the pandemic has seen lots of those collaborations. At LSE Ideas, where I work, we collect examples on a website called Better Together. And it's companies um, who are delivering personal protective equipment, water for hand washing, they've helped paying for energy not just to their workforces, but to whole communities. And I think it's that kind of contribution to public stability, crisis response that I highlight in the book. So the two are very linked, although it was written before COVID struck us.
0: Excellent. This will provide us with a great basis to further develop in our discussion on the one chapter you wrote about Liberia and the Ebola crisis. Um, But for now, I'd like us to take a step back again and look at what made you actually write this book. Um, In your book, in the introduction, you describe this key moment that motivated you to write it. You say it was around 2006 and the group of businessmen meet in London to discuss the investment possibilities that were about to open up in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which had just emerged from five years of civil war. You were there when a banker then explained these promising opportunities with the example of a mine, that would now only need 10% of its workforce. And so what you did is you stood up and asked what the banker and his clients, so the companies with rights to the mine, intended to do with the workers that were going to be laid off. Because after all, um, all of them had actively engaged in the conflict um, and they were now in dire need of jobs and housing and healthcare which the profits of the mine could at least theoretically provide. But his answer was brutal in that he said, well, these people are my responsibility. They are someone else's problem. That's what set you off. And my first question to you would therefore be, if you had the same interaction today again, would you ask the same question to
1: the banker? And do you think he could afford giving the same answer? I definitely would ask the same question, but clearly things have moved on, not just in DRC, but uh, in so many other areas of the world since then. I think this question of responsibility and who does what, what should business do and what should governments do, what should civil society do, um, I think is very much part of the current discourse. So I'm hoping my Canadian banker perhaps wouldn't even have the same kind of uh, rather brutal statement. But if he did, I think um, I would still say to him that companies' business needs to see local communities not as part of the problem, but as as the solution, if you like. Working with them is the solution. So they're not a threat. I mean, what the banker was implying, that they were kind of a, a threat or a, what business often calls a negative externality, something to be dealt with. And what I hope the message of the book is to show some pathways whereby companies can work with communities with governments at local and national level and that there is um there are resources and capacities on all sides that need to be brought together so i guess it's not just about thinking of business in its own little silo but as part of a much richer wider society encompassing fabric
0: and so before we go into specific key studies where you show how these interactions can actually work positively I'd like us to go back to one element that you touch upon in your book. You speak of companies as the elephant in the room. No one really feels comfortable engaging with. So I'd like us to tell us perhaps where you think this malaise comes from and how your book contributes to changing this impression.
1: Well, I guess the other reason also for starting to write the book was that I had worked um, in the area of, you know, what we call human security for, for some years. And basically, we would looked at human security in terms of what governments do or, um, you know, the military, maybe NGOs, but nobody was talking about business. And what really struck me was that if you're going to have a conversation about peace building, sustainable development, security, if you like, then you have to have the private sector in there. Um, again, we tend to kind of leave them, leave them outside uh, of conversations, that they're implicit that you know somehow um, a normal society, a post-conflict um, reconstruction agenda involves uh, restarting private sector activity, but nobody actually invites the businesses in. And I wasn't talking about sort of businessmen as diplomats necessarily. I think this has to go to core business Um, because again i think certainly in the years since 2006 we've seen a lot of emphasis by companies investors and regulators on uh, environmental social and governance goals so the idea that it's not just about profits that companies have to have a uh, another alternative bottom line but i think that still hasn't really touched um it's still seen as something apart it hasn't touched the core business of many businesses so I think the, the challenge, not just for companies, but I think for policymakers and civil society as well, is to make sure we, we bring that elephant out of you know, its, its cage, if you like, talk about it and talk talk to it. Um, so again, going back to this idea of collaborative solutions and, and conversations that encompass all the actors who have power and capacity to make a difference in, in conflict and, and development settings.
0: Right, and your way of sort of bringing the elephant out of that box, that cage, was exactly what your novel approach meant to use human security as a lens, and then methodologically speaking, using personal stories to show the impact. So I'd like you to walk us through this approach. Why did you choose it? What did it entail? And how did it allow you to tell a different story about com- corporations?
1: Well, clearly I was working in this area anyway, um, so I had a, a sense of it being um, a much more relevant and appropriate lens, you know, in in the world that we find ourselves now than than traditional classic security. Um, because security, and this, again, I think is what the pandemic has shown us, it is about those multiple interconnected threats at the level of the everyday and at local level. And if you like, they kind of ripple outwards and upwards. So um, again, the idea in in the COVID pandemic, unless we're all safe, none of us is safe. So I think human security as an idea has some traction in the world um, we're living in. I also thought it was, it was really useful. And this is why I decided to use examples. It was really useful to look at the level that really companies weren't um, thinking about. We we see a lot, we, we hear a lot from boardrooms and from CEOs and, you know, global efforts, um, maybe with the UN or with governments. But it is that local level, that everyday level that I felt needed a light shining on it, just to see how really in the real world, companies and corporate operations impact on people, particularly people in the most fragile settings in in the poorest areas. And it wasn't necessarily all a bad story. I mean, it's always tricky when you're writing about uh, the private sector, because people have very Entrenched positions, particularly in the field of development studies, sometimes, you know, the very fact that you're talking to corporates is somehow you're you're engaged in greenwashing, whitewashing, so on. And there's a very dominant narrative which is about companies causing conflict, being conflict drivers. And you also see that in the discourse on business and human rights, which of course has has emerged and is is now quite strong in the last ten years. Um, I certainly didn't want to greenwash or whitewash, but I did feel that there was another side to the story and that if one just looked at those everyday interactions between corporations, in my case, I was looking particularly at global, you know, big corporations um, and and people uh, at community level, that you would find something else. You would find also more positive um, interactions going on. So one could start to see glimpse a potential for uh, for more positive transformations that the business sector could bring about. Exactly. And I think this is now a good
0: moment to actually zoom in to one of these stories that you tell in the book. And the one that particularly stands out and is perhaps really the best to highlight how companies can, if they want, <laughs> play a critical role is the chapter about Mittel, the world's largest steel and mining company, and how it responded to the Ebola epidemic in Liberia, West Africa, back in 2014. Through that story, you really show how companies can um, take on a responsible role. Mittel was built into, I quote you, a protective force to combat the spread of Ebola um, in the sense of it brought, for example, heat-seeking scanners to test for fever, something many of us will now be familiar with, with the pandemic. And so it used these scanners among employees, uh, but also visitors. And it also provided head-to-toe protective clothing, which was then distributed to hospitals and companies wherever Metal was was present. And so I'd like to take this opportunity and allow you to explain how this company decided to do that, who was involved in the decision-making process and how it helped bringing the epidemic under control.
1: It, it is a fascinating story. And, um, I mean, who knew that it was going to become so relevant again? Because it's a story that really took place in 2014 when Ebola which had been in in Western Africa um, and DRC was one place uh, where you're still finding outbreaks. But this was very much concentrated in, in West African countries, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and so on. And I've had many conversations with Arcelor about this. What happened was the company did all the things that you've mentioned, but I think what was crucial was it did it at a time when, the international community wasn't really looking. There was a gap, if you like, in the response. Um, so the World Health Organization and a lot of other aid organizations who would eventually come in and do what they do. I'm not saying that you know the corporate piece in all this was the only part of the puzzle, but I think what was critical was that there was a time gap when, um, to the frustration of some of the ArcelorMittal ma- managers, The international community wasn't really taking this seriously enough. Um, It wasn't declared a pandemic. And there were um, logistical and resourcing actions that the company and other companies could do um, to to fill that gap. Um, And what was so fascinating about it was actually a kind of very, very simple on the one hand, but also complex operation. It was a communications issue. So it was the head of corporate responsibility at ArcelorMittal who was on a visit to um, Monrovia, the capital of Liberia. Really brought home to him that this how how devastating and how rapidly spreading this this um, disease was was becoming, and he set up uh, in the first place set up a conference call with other companies in the region. This grew and grew and grew. And at one stage, with um, extra technical assistance, I think, from telecoms companies and so on, they got 400 people on a conference call. And these were mostly from private sector um, organisations. And it was, if you like, an information sharing, a logistics sharing operation. I've got this kind of transport. Where is it needed? Um, I can help this clinic. You know, I can obviously put in place... Um, facilities and resources around my own operations. But we can also do something for the wider community. And to the critics, again, who would say, well, this was just about companies saving their own investments and skins and so on. I think that's certainly true. I mean, they saw the risk that the entire economy of Liberia, Sierra Leone, Could implode under the um, weight of this pandemic and obviously with it their investments which were worth billions and had taken years to um, to build up however it was also i think an exercise in in leadership in leadership by the private sector and recognizing where it could make um, a really useful and as i say very timely contribution and did it change the world i don't know it gave us i think somehow an idea an inkling of exactly where the private sector can intervene, how it can deploy its resources um, effectively. And I say as much as anything, it was in terms of information sharing and communications and coordination and filling a gap um, that existed. Um, At the beginning of the COVID um, pandemic a year ago, they looked at um, reinstating what was called the Ebola private sector mobilization group, which was this um, consortium, if you like, of companies in the region. Um, And it was activated. It's not a kind of formal partnership. It is still, I think, quite an ad hoc arrangement. But I think it does provide us with an interesting illustration of what, what business can do, where it can make a difference to security on the ground. And you have to remember that this was a region, it wasn't just a frail, fragile economy. It was coming out of conflict. So all those kind of government functions were pretty much lacking. And that was a critical thing, too, that there was a role and a vacuum for the private sector to fill.
0: Absolutely. And that's why I think it's such a powerful illustration. I do want to pick up the sentence you also write, um, that it was really a game changer for the notion of corporate responsibility. And, you know, to now hear that it has still an ad hoc format, I'm wondering, how would you assess the long term impact of that, of having really brought about the change in how companies view their responsibilities to what you earlier called a negative externality, so the the local population.
1: I think there are are many different dynamics going on when we think about this this issue of of business responsibility and how it engages with, with local communities. And not the least dynamic is within companies themselves. Um, and I think what struck me in the interviews I did with Arcelor and indeed others, um, Rio Tinto was another who was active in this um, Ebola private sector mobilization group and active in the region, it's what it does to internal um, perceptions of what um, a company's role is and the functions that need to be put in place within companies. I think we've become used to the idea of, of, of functions like the sort of corporate responsibility and Stakeholder engagement within companies often they tend to be rather poorly resourced and um, and quite marginal to the company's main activities. So I think not least uh, the Ebola example for ArcelorMittal drew in people from across the company. Um, they were really engaged in this in this effort to to respond. So it brought in the the public relations people, the investor relations people, the logis- logisticians, probably the legal people. Um, And I think one of the things that struck me most in the interviews I did with them was um, one of the corporate communications people saying to me, it made me feel so proud about working for this company. And I think that kind of employee reaction is a huge incentive for other companies to consider how they exercise their uh, responsibility towards the outside world, towards communities, how they engage with other people, you know, beyond the kind of investor and uh, and even customer um, spheres. So I think in that sense, it was a game changer. And of course, it was a game changer in just demonstrating um, to, in that case, many companies within the region, just what they could do and how they could make a difference.
0: Right. And you also show that this was a concerted effort, Arsene Mittel did with so many other companies. So How would you say, given there is often this negative attitude and the elephant in the room, how do you think this was an exception because it's such a big company and because other companies don't want to and shouldn't expose themselves on their own? Or do you think this is actually a role model behavior that others could easily replicate?
1: I think one of the interesting trends I've noticed since I first started writing the book was—I mean, I mentioned at the beginning that I think companies' views of their own responsibility and their obligations to wider society and and, and fragile communities, in particular, is shifting. But I think um, their sense of where where those boundaries lie is is changing, but it's still quite uncertain. And I think you know we're inheriting a model of capitalism, if you like, which goes back to the 1970s, 80s, this kind of neoliberal capitalism, which obviously particularly large companies are. It's the model that that they follow in particular. And I think that that is changing in several ways, not just because, and this is very much part of the, the global discourse now, it's not just about pure profits. It's also about sort of bottom line issues that can be about um corporate reputation and non-financial risks. So I think that changes um, the way companies see their their view of their responsibilities and the extent of their responsibility. But I think we've also inherited a model of capitalism from that sort of era, the 70s and 80s, where it was very much about competition. And I think what companies, big companies in particular, are starting to recognize is that this requires a very different kind of modus operandi, if you like. It, they are often much more comfortable in doing these kind of what you might call social interventions alongside other companies, as in the case of Oslo uh, and in Liberia with the Ebola crisis, that they don't want to be out there on their own. It's not about doing something better than another company. It's about seeing where the synergies are. And having again, having that sort of collective action. So, I think in these ways, our, our model is already changing. A lot of people always ask me what you know the, the private sector is many things, it's not just about big transnational companies. And, and that is absolutely right. And certainly in conflict zones and crisis zones, some of the biggest impacts, if you like, or the long standing, the long term impacts are through local businesses and much smaller kinds of um, enterprises. But I think what is really interesting is for me, certainly writing this book and in the work that I do, big global companies are the entry point because they sit at the head of value chains, of supply lines. They're more likely to change the kind of global norms and the business models that other companies follow. So that's why in the book I've I've basically looked at large companies. But if you like, they are the doorway through which other other businesses can also tread. I hope. Yes,
0: and to stay for a moment with these big companies and the impact they have in handling a health crisis. If you allow myself, I'm going to sidetrack a little bit from your book, which was obviously written way before the pandemic. But still, if you could tell us what your take is on the inaccessibility of the COVID vaccine, because basically pharmaceutical corporations insist on intellectual property, even though this was developed with public money and thus have a monopoly on the vaccine's distribution. Is there something from your chapter on the Ebola crisis you could link to this uh, conversation?
1: I think the... um... Certainly, one thing about the, the vaccine is we have started to see, you know, through the COVAX uh, alliance, that vaccines are, I think, the first delivery went to Ghana a few weeks ago of, of, of free vaccines. So I'm encouraged by the fact that um, certainly in these initial phases and stages, some of the big pharmaceutical companies are pledging to make it available at, at cost rather than make a profit. We'll have to see further down the line whether that still holds true. Um, so, again, I think one of the scholars who writes um, much more in depth about this sort of thing, certainly the, than I do, um, is someone like Marina Mazzucato, who who writes about, um, you know, moonshot <laughs> missions. And, and clearly, I think her latest book, again, was written before COVID, but very much applies to the distribution of vaccines, that you do need that mix of public money, private initiative, private innovation, and it has to be harnessed together. That it's a symbiotic relationship. And I think too, the other thing I would say, which relates perhaps more, more to my book, is that it's not just about producing the vaccine. You've got to get it into people's arms. So there's a whole ecosystem of delivery and acceptance, because clearly, in some societies, even you know, even my own, there is Resistance in some communities parts of the community to having the vaccine, so there's so much more than just producing the biological sort of samples, if you like, and I think that's something where again companies because they're on the ground because they are the phrase I use in the book is the force in on the ground, the present, they have local information, they have logistics, they have local relationships, and I'm hoping that that will very much be part also of their contribution to helping not just to produce and, and innovate in terms of developing vaccines, but getting it to the point where they're in people's arms and doing good. And so on this point of, you know, they have
0: the local knowledge and connection, I'd like us to completely shift context and focus and go to your chapter in Serbia, which I found completely fascinating. So this is an entirely different story, right? You tell about Fiat arriving in 2009 in Serbia and taking over the other symbolic car factories, Astava. This, you argue, was really a flagship project of the idea of development through privatization. It will bring back jobs, uh, technology, it will provide international standards, and therefore also help bring a society divided by conflict and authoritarianism back together. But what you then say is that FIAP lacked the local knowledge to foresee what kind of ripple effects its investment was going to have on the local population and even party politics. So if you don't mind telling us more about what these ripple effects were and what you think Fiat should have done to prevent them?
1: Well, Fiat the Fiat case was actually the first one that I studied. And it was so interesting. I knew the people at Fiat well. Um, I was a business journalist before and I worked with them a lot. And when somebody pointed out what they were doing in Serbia, and as you say, it was around the time of very critical elections. So they, this investment came at a, at a huge moment of transition, political transition for the, for the country. And I asked them if I could go and have a look. And they said, well, you won't be very interested in it. I mean, there's no human rights abuses. There's no kind of um, it's not it's not a conflict zone, it's not the kind of thing that you do. And I said, Well, <coughs> just let me go anyway. And um so when I went, I mean it was the most extraordinary site, literally the, the the picture of this, it it had been partly the the factory site that they'd taken over in Kragjovat, which um is, is the sort of real industrial heartland of, of Serbia, you know, generations of manufacturing. And this site had been bombed by NATO, there was pollution and the local community had been devastated because obviously jobs had had disappeared and the whole infrastructure, that kind of socialist infrastructure that they'd grown up with for for generations really, was was collapsing. And I met um, the extremely charming, very competent uh, new head of of the factory, Zastava was the factory and the plant. Um, that Fiat had brought in from India. And um, because this was for Fiat, it was just um, another example, which the company is very good at, of um, low-cost manufacturing sites. And it was one that was now in the heart of Europe. So, you know, they have plenty of others. In Brazil, for example, they'd done a very successful um, operation in Poland as well to produce sort of cheap cars for an expanding consumer population from Eastern Europe. But it was like one of those times when you just lift up a small stone and you find so much more going on underneath that Fiat just didn't seem to be conscious of. They were doing all the right things in their eyes um, in terms of, um, you know, putting money into the factory, modernizing, talking to the local community about technical skills, you know, investing in the local um, education, and yet somehow they just missed so many of the points that I could pick up on, that this was an enormous change at both the local level in Kragyvat to, to the community there and, and also at national level, because effectively the fiat investment had swung the election behind the pro-European party. So I just got the sense that however well-meaning they were and doing all the right things, they just weren't kind of grasping the magnitude of the transformation that actually their investment represented. And then what was interesting was to go back. I went back to Kragevats repeatedly over the years. um, And, of course, there were huge, um, seemingly positive changes. You know, the next time, almost the next time I went, the the factory was, it wasn't run down, it wasn't derelict, it was um, squeaky clean, and there were lots of people walking around in beautiful white Italian designer overalls. And there were all the sorts of things that you might expect. There was a sort of workers' council or I think even a parliament. And there was a crash, And there were new hotels in the town to accommodate um, in all the visiting Italian managers and so on. So a lot of things were being done right. But I think what didn't happen was that Fiat underestimated exactly what it was taking on. And as I kept going back, the economy, the world economy, we're then talking about the financial recession, the global crisis of 2000, you know, post 2009, and all the expectations that people had locally and nationally of fiat were dashed, you know, the production levels and the investment wasn't as much as as was originally envisaged, more people had to be laid off. So it became older people who were being laid off. So you had situations where fathers were pitted against sons you know it was an intergenerational uh, impact and the school the technical school yes it was teaching italian and it was teaching automotive skills but it wasn't doing other things which could have produced a more rounded local economy when the fiat production shrank as it inevitably did so for me it was just a fascinating example and what i wanted to do throughout the book was really open people's eyes open people's eyes within companies but also outside to actually the kind of impact that these corporate investments have and using that human security lens to understand them a bit better.
0: Yes, and you do that very beautifully. One of the things I wanted to go back to is that you take this approach of telling stories and you stress that these are personal stories. So it does depend on the individual involved, on perhaps the particular executive manager, Arsal Mittal. And so, does that mean that the impact will eventually always depend on the people involved, no matter how well a guidance or norms we develop on corporate responsibility?
1: I think that is that is one of the crucial questions in the kind of work I do now, because so often, you know, not just the stories in this book, but um, elsewhere, you find companies who want to do the right thing, but acknowledge that it is down to... The vision of a local manager or, or the the commitment, and you know if that person moves on then then things change again. So how do we systematize it? How do we make it more embedded and I think also connecting the different levels because often what you 've got is a policy at national level or even a commitment we see very much commitments at international level, you know institutions like the UN Global Compact very popular. And if you read, I spent a lot of time when I was preparing the book, reading corporate websites, and they all say the same kind of things, you know, we're committed to um, to these environmental social governance goals and uh, stakeholder engagement and all this nice, warm words. But how do you get that to not just trickle down, but really flood down to the local level? And that actions at the local level equally go up through the corporate management and become part of corporate policy, not just in how it does business, but how it measures, impacts how it is accountable and how it reports things. Um, And I think um, this is where government needs to play a role uh, and civil society has a huge uh, function in trying to systematise those collaborations and making sure that all the different levels connect, that warm words at you know, CEO level translate into actions on the ground? And the people who are on the ground, because they often tend to be very pragmatic, very problem-solving. That's another capacity I think that companies have, that the mindset, the business mindset, is obviously often a very problem-solving mindset. And that's very useful when you're on the ground in fragile, conflict, crisis-affected situations. How do you make sure that that kind of approach Um, gets recognized, rewarded, incentivized, and is part of the kind of mainstream way that companies do business. And I think that's the challenge for the next few years, I think is really embedding those kind of new attitudes at every level of company operation. Right. And if I've understood correctly, this new attitude
0: would lead us to an era of regenerative business. So to go beyond simply wanting to achieve doing no harm and upholding human rights. And so a challenging question would be, the subtext to this is that do no harm is already achieved, and that is certainly something quite a big part of civil
1: society would probably push back against. So, is that really what you're saying? No, I think it's I think it's a fair criticism that we can be seduced by all the all the noise that there is around, you know, um, new norms on business and human rights, but you know it it needs to go a lot further it isn't even the majority of companies that are doing enough on on due diligence but my point is that i think the moment has now come to be more ambitious than that and i think that's what a lot of companies already recognize that um that's a minimum standard and we need minimum standards i mean we need minimum standards on human rights due diligence on reporting transparency anti-corruption but i think it it's it behoves big companies in particular, companies that have the resources and the information and knowledge um, capacities to go much further than that. And I think that's what the current... Well, I talk in the book at the beginning that I felt that it was it was the product of, of you know, what I was talking about. And this role for a changing role and contribution of business was the product of then two crises. You know, one was... Uh, the crisis, if you like, of liberal peace, that clearly the way we were doing peace interventions um, since the end of the Cold War, that had come under some um, tension and strain. It, again, wasn't really fit for purpose. Uh, and similarly, the, I think the the 2008 financial crisis was strongly in my mind that people expect more of companies. And we're seeing that very much now, um, that there is an expectation post-COVID under whatever rubric envelope you like, the Build Back Better or Reset Capitalism, that things need to change. And I think companies, big companies, do recognize that. So what I wanted to do was to sketch out, and I do this at the end of the book, a kind of terrain that is perhaps different to the kind of compliance, the minimal, do no harm, human rights, due diligence, They're essential, but it's the sort of um, necessary, critical, but not sufficient uh, argument. I think there is a terrain uh, where companies, big and small, can engage much more proactively and much more effectively, particularly at the local level, uh, in order to be part of these conversations and interventions around peace and human security. Right. And so to go slowly
0: back to where we started in the DRC, You also write that in post-war DRC it was saturated by peacekeepers and reforms and President Kabila admitted that there had been a huge mismanagement of the country's natural resources. Um, To quote, um, you say that he said we need to put an end to the paradox which sees huge mining potential and ever more mining activity but only very modest benefits for the state. You then also refer to the Africa mining vision, which African countries had published and which aimed to achieve a trickle-down effect from the sale of minerals, but in fact you tend that the vision was more about gaining the confidence of investors and not about really changing the ways extractive companies operate. And so my question is what would be a way for the producing countries to regain some control over their natural resources?
1: Again, I think it's a multi-level endeavor. I think there are huge deficits in in capacities and just the lack of voices being heard at the community level. I was very struck. I went with a colleague. We were doing work in Liberia, and we went we went all around the country. And we Liberia, rather like um, DRC, is a, a prime example where this is, these are resource economies. They're kind of dominated by relatively small number of of international firms. Um, and it becomes very difficult, especially to governments who are under pressure, under pressure because um, they're coming out of conflict. They themselves have very weak um, resources, not just financial, but in terms of staffing and oversight. And yes, of course, a lack of will to 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 do the right thing. They tend to side with the companies and against you know, local voices. And we were so struck in Liberia where we repeatedly heard that you know the government would talk to the big companies, the big foreign companies, and the foreign companies would talk to the local communities under whatever label, you know, community engagement or corporate response, social responsibility. And, of course, there was some kind of dialogue, even if it was only around elections between governments and communities. But none of these points were joined up. So I think one means to regaining... Not just control, government control of these resources, but really developing a much more rounded conversation in which communities, the people who work for these companies, the people whose land is being affected when uh, natural resources are being exploited, when, you know, the environmental impact has to be taken into account. And, you know, there's a dimension, a kind of temporal dimension to this, because you're having to deal with, if you like, people as yet unborn, because the damage... And the potential harms as well as the benefits may last for generations, so how do you get a much more rounded conversation and much more participation by the people who are really going to be feeling the impacts good and bad of these um, corporate presences um, and I think you know there needs to be much more done on the governance if you like of of uh, big business in these producer countries uh, the local governance how do you bring together uh, in a sustained way that improves the resilience, improves the ability to be heard by the communities who are affected. So what I'm saying is, I think we want to get away from feeling that these are just bilateral conversations between governments and companies, because then you get back to just a sort of bargaining negotiation type um, relationship. I think you've got to involve local communities and you've got to find modalities of governance of that resource extraction that gives um, gives all the stakeholders a much more active um, active
0: role in agency. Thank you for explaining that. And with that, we slowly draw to the end, but we always round it off with our policy window. So this is a special feature of two minutes. We'll, we'll give you the floor and we'd like you to imagine that you're standing in front of 200 policymakers, something like the World Economic, Economic Forum or similar. And you now have the unique opportunity to bring really home these key messages from your research and to tell them what they should consider moving forward.
1: So, my elevator pitch yes, it's <laughs> what I would say is I think we are now living in a world where it's increasingly evident to policymakers, whether governments, but also international organizations, the UN, and so forth, that the private sector is an important resource in delivering uh, development and in in peace building. I think that's recognized. For example, the share of overseas development assistance um, in national budgets is up to around 25% in many countries that governments are targeting the business sector um, in countries they're assisting. So I think that is becoming recognized. And of course, the sustainable development agenda itself depends very heavily on private sector support, given the huge estimated costs of meeting the development 17 development goals. So, development and peacebuilding can no longer be done from public money alone. However, I think policymakers need to not simply see the private sector as a financial resource. Um, and there are examples in my book where companies have found creative solutions to, to problems, what some people call the wicked problems, particularly in conflict and fragile zones, They're wicked because they are complex, intractable, and involve tackling many different dimensions at the same time. Something that obviously policy um, can can struggle with. So I think policymakers need to see companies not just as cash cows. They need to be brought inside conversations about peace building. And although they may sometimes contribute to the problem, they're also very much part of the solution for the reasons that we've discussed, their local knowledge, their problem-solving abilities, their logistics. And these are very much the lessons of, say, Liberia and the chapter on on Mexico, that companies um, can do more. And I think it's a barrier just to see them as simply um, something that finances development. However, I think you do need some kind of demarcation of responsibilities. The governance angle of increased private sector contributions is also important. Um, governments need to govern, companies need to do their business. Um, And in fact, the problem in conflict and fragile environments is often an absence of government. Um, So I think there is a responsibility gap. I talk about it in Chapter 4, and I think the COVID pandemic illustrates where this gap also exists. But I think companies don't want to and they shouldn't do everything. I think development and peace building needs to be a shared endeavour and I think we need conversations we need policy discussions at global national and local levels about who does what who should do what and I think policymakers have a role to play in helping constructive collaborations at local level in making sure that communities can dialogue effectively with um, big companies especially when there are underlying power imbalances and differences between them. So I think the, the policymakers need to act as conveners and facilitators of those, of those conversations. Um, and I think it's important, too, that all sides really take seriously the need to inspire and motivate a whole new generation of, um, if you like, clicktivists, you know, internet activists, but also employees, customers, uh, media, because I think there is a sense that this is what publics increasingly expect um and need and i think there is a duty on policymakers, but business as well to respond to that so it's not business as usual it's not development and peace building as usual we have to find new collaborative models um i think to to take this forward and if you like to capitalize on some of the hopefully some of the insights that i found in my book Thank you indeed for this passionate and interesting
0: speech, which was just slightly over two minutes. And yeah, thank you very much for having been with us, Mary. It was a pleasure. If you found this interesting, then please consider buying the book, Corporate Peace. It is available from Haas Publishers. And thank you all very much for listening. This was delivered to you by our producer, Sanjali Jabarte and me, Leandra Baez. And if you like what we do, please hit like and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify and we'll be back in June.